This is Steady Habits, a Connecticut Mirror podcast. It's where we take a look at life here in the land of steady habits, what works, what doesn't, and how to make things work just a little bit better. I'm John Dankosky. Thanks so much for joining me. Connecticut continues to be among the leading states in getting its residents COVID vaccine shots. The most recent CDC data show that only two states have administered first doses to a higher percentage of its population. Here's Governor Ned Lamont in his COVID briefing last week. This is a race. We are racing to get as many people vaccinated as quickly as we can um, ahead of what could be this um, super contagious um, uh, strain. Most of the state's healthcare personnel, first responders, and many in long-term care facilities have gotten the shot. And those 75 and older, not already in that group, are getting theirs now. But as Connecticut moves towards its next phase of vaccinations, those 65 and older, there's a big issue looming. Residents in that age group are overwhelmingly white, which means younger black and Latino residents, including those working in jobs considered essential, will have to wait. And data show that the threat to those younger workers of color is roughly equal to that of older white residents who are slated to get the next doses. The Mirror's analysis shows that the COVID mortality rate for a 65-year-old white person is comparable to that of a 55-year-old black person and a 60-year-old Hispanic person. That equity issue is what Connecticut Mirror reporters Jacqueline Rabe Thomas, Kasturi Pananjati, and Jenna Carlesso uncover in their story today. While the state's age-based plan makes efficiency a priority, it does raise the question, is Connecticut's vaccine rollout leaving behind black and Latino residents? Jackie and Kasturi join me now. Welcome to Steady Habits. Thanks for joining me. Thanks for having me. Yeah, thanks for having us. What do we know right now, Jackie, about why the state is distributing vaccines in this way? We understand it's similar to what's happening around the rest of the country. What is the state saying about why it's doing it that way? So it really comes down to a matter of efficiency. And, you know, especially now we have an overburdened healthcare system. So if we're now having to somehow verify, you know, younger populations um, of pre-existing conditions, it adds a level of complexity to it. And so it, it has the potential to slow things down in some people's minds. Kasturi, tell me about the data that, that you found on this. What data sets were you working with, first of all? Yeah, so I was working with a Department of Public Health data set. Um, it runs through October at present, and it lists all the the deaths in the state. Um, so step one was to factor out COVID deaths. And as part of those death certificates, it includes information about race and ethnicity. Um, so once we were able to isolate COVID deaths uh, through the pandemic, the next step was to try and understand how you can compare different races, because we live in a state that is predominantly white. So then how do you start to think about disparity? How do you start to think about disproportionality? Um, and the way that you do that is to then find out what the baseline population is uh, for each race by age. Um, uh, and then we calculated a mortality rate. And that's when you start to see that people uh, who are Black and Hispanic, who are younger, have similar mortality rates to people who are white and older, um, which brings into, into question this whole idea of a strict age-based cutoff. Um, if you argue that age is a strong predictor of mortality, and in, in it is, it, it, the older you are, the more likely you are to die of this. Um, then if that's the rationale, then there's clearly something else at play here. It's not just age, but it's also your race that determines your likelihood of dying from this disease. And as you talk about those numbers, it really is startling that Black and Latino residents, regardless of the work that they do, who are much younger, 
are actually just as much at risk. Maybe you can talk through that data a little bit more for us, Kasturi, and, and show us what it means because it feels very alarming as we say it out loud. You know, race in this analysis is essentially standing in for a number of other things. It's standing in for your likelihood of having good access to health care. It's standing in for your likelihood of having a pre-existing condition. It's standing in for your a risk of exposure to the disease if you have a job that doesn't let you self-isolate. So when you think about it that way, it's actually not that surprising that, you know, you see race uh, vary mortality rates by age. Um, it Race is essentially standing in for all these other factors that a strict age-based cutoff and vaccine allocation would not account for. Um, what our analysis finds is that white people who are between 65 and 69 have um, similar rates of dying of COVID to Black people who are 55 and 59, and Hispanic people who are between 60 and 65. If you are trying to design a vaccine allocation system that takes into account people's likelihood of dying, then age is not the only thing you should be looking at. It's probably age in combination with race, and it might be in combination with other things. And that's what the that's the question that the story is raising. Um, I spoke with Georgia Goldberg, who is a childcare worker. She runs a, a childcare facility down in New Haven. She's not surprised that there is a difference in access to these vaccinations. In her mind, this is the system that was set up to to work this way. Um, you know, she has a really powerful interview that I did with her um, talking about sort of every step of the way, um, sort of this lack of access. And, and until we begin to address those structural issues, those structural racial issues, we're always going to come to this place of, huh, it's so interesting that we seem to have the same results. We always have the same results because structurally racism is built into the system. The people who historically have had access to the resources, whether it's financial, economic, um, health, health resources, have always been white versus black. And so if we continue to use the same structure and mechanism to try to get to people, we're always going to have the same results. Any data that you look at that is basically using the same infrastructure to bring, to, to bring about a certain type of resources to the community, it's always going to same, show the same results. It's always going to point to the structural inequity, the, the racial inequity that's built into the system. I'm not surprised that whatever structure or mechanism that they have designed to 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 make the vaccine available, that it's breaking out that white people are disproportionately receiving those vaccines because that's how the system was set up um, to function and to operate. So, you know, if you look at Lamont deciding to do access based on age, you know, he really does follow what other places in the country have have done. And what CDC guidance, their advisory panel, they did actually recommend this path to go for starting with those in, in assisted living and nursing homes, and those who are 75 and older. But the big question is, so who goes next? And that's really where states start to sort of diverge in, in their approach. Um, there are 10 states that presently offer vaccines to those with um, 
pre-existing conditions in younger populations right now. Um, another six are expected to go online very soon after they're done vaccinating those in nursing homes and those over age 75. Um, but Connecticut decided to go a different way and do this eff this efficiency model versus sort of an equ equity model. Um, and then so it raises all these questions among health experts as well. Jackie, this next group of people who are scheduled to be vaccinated after those 65 and over, that's going to include a lot of these healthcare workers and other essential workers. What have we been hearing from people who represent those uh, workers? Yeah, so who comes to mind are grocery store workers. And um, I, I interviewed the president of the union who represents thousands of grocery store workers. And, um, you know, it comes down to an inventory in his mind that we just don't have enough shots to, to hand out right now. But um, he also sees a disparity of, you know, his mom actually is able to get a vaccine, but his the people who work at his store are not. Another individual that I interviewed, he represents um, childcare workers and he's white and his mom was getting a shot. She's able to stay home all day, every day and sort of sequester herself, whereas, the workers that he represents are still having to go to work if they want to get paid. And so there's sort of this inequity in um, who is able to get the shot um, and who's not. Um, I was double checking one of your statistics from the beginning um, mm -hmm. when you said Connecticut was second or there are two states before Connecticut in the number of vaccines administered. Here's my issue with using the population as the denominator. Think about it this way. The real limiting factor here is not how many people you've got, it's how many vaccines you've got. It's how many vaccines that the federal government gave you. Um, and the real measure of success in my mind is not, you know, how well that number squares up with the number of people you've got, but how good a job you're doing in pushing those vaccines out and putting them into people's arms. That's the true metric of how well the state's distributing stuff is. What have you got? How much of it have you used? Um, not how many people you've got. That to me is sort of, not the it's, it's it's not the metric to be looking at to assess the success of the distribution plan and if you look at the success of the distribution plan connecticut's data suggests that 65 percent of the doses that have been distributed have been administered we start to fall in that regard and north dakota that's at the top is like 84 percent of the vaccines that have been distributed have been administered so to me that's the metric to be looking at to see if the state's doing a good job distributing what it's got Many people have said, including quite a, a few epidemiologists I've talked to, that if you get the vaccine into the arms of younger people who are essential workers, it actually will more quickly slow the spread of the disease than just getting it to people who are 65 and over who may not be going out into, into public all that much. It's, a, it's an interesting you know, conundrum the state's sort of put itself in. Yeah, I think it's a the, it's the question of what it is that you're, when we say efficiency, we're talking about optimizing something. And my question is, what is the something? Are we trying to minimize the number of deaths we see? Are we trying to minimize the number of cases we see? Uh, are we trying to, what's the metric that we're trying to reduce here? Um, and I think that, you know, depending on the metric that you pick, the answers to this are different. Um, to my mind, if we're trying to reduce the number of people dying, you know, age is a good place to start because the older you are, the more likely you are to die. But I think this the story is basically saying, it's a great starting point, but do we need to do more to actually understand who's at risk and how and why 
if it is indeed our end goal to reduce the number of people dying of this disease. Um, I don't necessarily see the efficiency and the equity things as being opposed. It's not to say the choice here, I think that's just a false dichotomy that's been presented where it's not a choice between, you know, a fair distribution of the vaccine as being the priority and on the other hand, reducing death. I think that those go hand in hand um, and I, I don't see why it is that we're talking about them as, they, as if they don't. Kasturi Panjati, Jacqueline Ray Thomas, thank you both so much for your reporting and I really appreciate your time. Thanks for having me. Thank you, John. Jacqueline Rabe Thomas covers equity, housing, and education for The Mirror. Kasturi Panjati is our data reporter. You can read more of their reporting with Jenna Carlesso in the Connecticut Mirror today. The story is at ctmirror.org, and it's titled, Is the State's Vaccine Rollout Leaving Behind Black and Latino Residents? Thanks to Bruce Potterman, Kyle Constable, and Beth Hamilton for their help in producing today's program. If you haven't signed up yet, please sign up for the last of our legislative session previews. It's coming up tomorrow, Thursday, January 28th at 7 p.m., and I'll be talking with Keith Vaniff. He's the guru, the Obi-Wan Kenobi of the Connecticut State Budget, and he'll answer all of your questions as well. Please join us Thursday, January 28th at 7 p.m. You can sign up at ctmirror.org events. Our Steady Beats are provided by George Mastrianis and Dave Swanson and were recorded at Legend Studios in Avon, Connecticut. I'm John Dankosky. Thanks so much for joining me and we'll be back next week.